Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts and colleagues, Ryan Sweet and Chris Dorides. Hi, guys. Hey, Mark. Hey, Mark. How are things? I'm tired. Good. Yeah, I'm tired, oh. too. You know, uh, I know why I'm tired. Uh, Chris, Chris and I we had a client dinner last night in, in New York. Uh, uh, we're on a bit of a tour here. We were in Chicago, yeah. Toronto, D.C., and that last night was New York. And uh, I had a, my first gin and tonic in quite some time. That was a mistake. Just out of practice. Huge, huge, huge mistake. Because uh, I, I followed that with a fair amount of white wine. Uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying any of this, but. Yeah, Moody's HR is going to be reaching out to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'll have to say the gin and tonic. Tasted good going down. Did you have any alcohol last night? You no, you generally do not. You want to be sharp, right, Chris? I want to be sharp. I did have a little bit of white wine. A little bit of white wine. Yeah, good. And, and are you a gin and tonic kind of fellow, Ryan? No, no. Yeah, I, I, I learned my lesson in college. I stay away from gin. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Mm -mm. You swear off gin. So, what is your? Do you have a alcohol of choice? No, not really. I'm not a not a big drinker. You're not, yeah. No. Well, I think we established on a prior podcast that he's a Budweiser guy, right? Oh, oh no, Budweiser no. Guy. Mm -mm. Bud Light, right? Bud Light, <laughs> Bud Light. <laughs> not a chance. Uh, Wait, why? Beer, you, beer's you, the best one to do. You're, you're pretty snooty. That yeah, snooty what's, what's going on there? You're, you're slamming your nose up at uh, Bud Light? What? Wait, what's no, that's that just all what about? we drank in college. So, <laughs> Well, it's back. I know it's back, but it brings me back to my, my college days and- so okay. I try to avoid it. All right, we're going to bring in our oh. guest because I want to know what he drinks. <laughs> yeah, Nick, Nick Bunk Bunker from uh, Indeed. Nick, welcome to Inside Economics. Hi there. How are you doing? So, what do you, what do you, what's your drink of choice? I, I'm a beer guy myself. You um, are not so much Bud Light. Um, I am a bit snooty when it comes to beer. I'll admit to that. <laughs> okay, well, let's. let's <laughs> I want to know how snooty. What is it that you, you know, what do you, if you had your choice? It's it's only ten thirty a.m. Eastern time on Friday, so I guess you don't want a beer right now. But let's yeah. say it's five p.m. Eastern time Friday. Which which the beer that you're going to pull out of uh, your uh, your refrigerator? So I'll give a plug for a brewery that's based uh, near where I am right now, which is the Tampa Bay area. Um, so I'll have uh, um, High Lie, which is like this IPA um, from a brewery down here. Um, uh, obviously named after like the very Florida-esque sport. Um, yeah. yeah, it's a nice solid IPA, but it's not like tons of hops. So it's not like that bitter taste, but it, it's it's a smooth it's a smooth drink. Guys, I get the sense he knows what he's talking about. I, I, oh, yeah, I, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like he's like, you know, about, he's like commenting on the hops. They had to come through. Where, where in the country do they come, or in the world do they come from? Do you have any, do you know that, Nick? Uh, the hops for that beer? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I know oh. Oregon is like a big producer of hops in general. So oh, I think really? a lot of the American-based ones are out there, at least on the West Coast. But I think there's like some, maybe I'm conflating like where the breweries are, but I think North Carolina has some as well. Oh. Ryan, did you know that? All the uh, hops no. come from your, from uh, uh, Oregon? I had no idea. I, I had no idea. I'm a little surprised. I thought Nick was going to say vodka and Red Bull since he just had <laughs> twins. So you need the energy. And then you need a little numbing oh, factor. Congratulations on the twins. Thank you very much. Yeah, I've been drinking less beer and more coffee these days because it's <laughs> definitely good. Caffe caffeine is what I need. Caffeine is what I need. Girl, boy, boy, girl. 
Two boys. Two. Okay. Oh boy. Oh boy. Is that yeah. what they say? Oh boy. <laughs> Very good. It's a double coffee. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah. It is indeed. I I I shouldn't know this, but I don't. Is indeed HQ in Tampa? It's not. So okay. it is. Um, there's technically two headquarters of mm-hmm. the company. Uh, it's um, Austin, Texas, and then also Stanford, Connecticut. Um, but there's offices throughout the country and lots of people, uh, fittingly for our topic, uh, one of our topics today, work remotely. Um, so I used to be in, based in the DC area um, when I started the company about four years ago. So I've been remote from the beginning um, and lots of people at the company are as well. Yeah, and we are gonna talk about remote work because you've done a lot of work in this area. And uh, I was, we were just commenting before we got on at our dinner last night with, uh, with clients, uh, all people, f- can talk about is remote work. Who's for it? Who's against it? Why they're for it? Why they're against it? And there seems to be this this growing gap between what CEOs think and what economists think. I, I don't know if you noticed that, but CEOs hate remote work. <laughs> so, well, there's a generational divide. It seems like. Do you think that's what it is? In part, uh, maybe it's the office space, right? I got all this beautiful office space. You know, when I'm CEO, what am I going to do with? It? Well, that's that's quite cynical comment. I you know, yeah, uh, just a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, well, let's talk about that. We got to talk. We definitely, and you've got, I know you got some strong views on that that topic, but we'll come back to that. We got a lot to talk about, but before we go down any path, Nick, can you just give us a sense of your path to chief economist of Indeed? And I I also, I, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about Indeed if you are willing and able to do that. Yeah. uh, And and while I appreciate the promo, I'm actually just a research director at Indeed. Um, so um, okay, research director, economist. chief economist, research director, chief. I, there, you know, I don't know. I like research cool. director better. What? Which would you rather be, Ryan? Research director or chief economist? Uh, research director. I. That's what I'm. Mm-hmm. What, now, Chris wants to be chief economist. We all know that. I, uh, I can't turn uh, my back to Chris, Nick. You know, I got to be very careful <laughs> in, when I'm around when I'm around Chris. I was thinking maybe chairman. Chair. <laughs> Chair. Yeah, right. Okay. So research director, that sounds pretty cool. So uh, can you just tell us a little bit about your work and your job? Yeah, sure. So I think sort of how I got to the position where I am. Um, so I referenced earlier that I used to live in the DC area. Uh, and I, when I was there, I worked at a couple of um, think tanks in the policy world, um, mm. you know, thinking about economic policy and near the tail end of that can part I ask of my who? Career. Which think tanks? Yeah. So uh, the Center for American Progress, oh, and then yeah. after that, oh, the sure. Washington Center for Equitable Growth. Oh, they're um, both great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I had um, really great experiences at both of them, learned a, a bunch of things, um, including sort of I was the uh, Washington Center for Equitable Growth was started in about 2013, and I actually was there from the beginning. So it was really interesting to not only, you know, the substantive work of you know, the research and the economics, but being part of a very quickly growing organization was. I'm on one of their advisory boards, the yep. Washington Equitable Growth. Yeah, great, great. Uh, new think tank. It's not it's relatively recent in the think tank kind of world, right? Yeah, like yeah. less than ten years old. Yeah, it? yeah, something yeah. like that. So, yeah. I mean, compared yeah. to like Brookings, that's nothing. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, very, very good. So I didn't realize that. So you're a cap and at Washington Equitable Growth, and and then you came over to Indeed. Yeah, so I I started focusing more and more on labor market issues. Mm -hmm. um, And then there was an opening at Indeed for an economist position. And I thought that'd be a really interesting place to go, um, in part because of all the access to the data that um, they now 
we have um, because we have um, you know lots of great data coming from the government and other sources that are publicly available, but um, the opportunity to, to see um, you know what was going on with Indeed's platform and doing research with that was super appealing. And um, now that I'm at the company, I've continued to find that to be super interesting uh, and valuable. Yeah, very cool. So tell us about Indeed. Yeah, so uh, Indeed, as, as folks hopefully know, is uh, you know the world's largest job platform. Um, and I did not platform. know that. You're the, the largest in the world. That is my understanding, yeah, that at least yeah. in the that's U.S. That's not hyperbole. Really... That's not marketing literature. You're the largest platform. Okay, cool. And yeah. in, in the world. And that is one of the um, advantages of sort of the team that I sit on, the hiring lab, is that um, we're doing research not just in the U.S., but across, at this point, eight, uh, seven other markets as well. So we have folks in the U.S., but also in Canada, the U.K., uh, Germany, France, uh, Australia, and we just had a Japanese economist start um, last month. So uh, what's enlightening is that you know, we're all using the same data source. So it's not like when you're trying to compare, say, unemployment rates or job vacancy rates across different countries where you have to think, you know, find some standardized uh, data source or understand the difference in the definition. We know that things are consistent because we have the same platform. Um, so it's always interesting to be able to compare um, very quickly what's happening in the US versus what's happening in Canada or even um, differences with say Australia. But then also we can see given that we have users in say Australia, what's happening to or other countries, their interests um, or search activity on say job postings in the US. So we can see sort of not only movements within a country, but also say, international interest um, or international you know, intended migration moves. And that's actually something that my colleagues over in Europe looked at earliest year and released a report on how the right. migration changes, like mobility changes. Yeah, just to, uh, that's really interesting. Um, just to get a, a sense of the scale, how many job postings are on your platform today for the US or other markets? Do you have a yeah, sense? So, so uh, we do have a sense that's sort of like a number that we, don't talk about really publicly oh, okay. um, for a variety of reasons. Well, but what I think about for inside economics? I mean, maybe, <laughs> uh, maybe just think, for us. Yeah, no. I think one way to yeah. think about it is like the representativeness of it. Um, we've done a few analyses trying to understand, you know, how representative our job postings are um, across like industry or occupational group and also just, you know, do the time series trends map uh, sort of match up. And basically since the beginning of the, pandemic. So March of 2020, we've been releasing high frequency data basically weekly on the growth in job postings on our platform um, in the US and then across the other markets as well. Um, in the US, if you look at our measure, which starts in February of 2020 and you match it up with say Jolt job openings, they move pretty in sync. It's not perfect or one for one, but like the growth trends there are um, very consistent with each other. In Jolts' job opening labor turnover survey, which is of great interest in, in the current context because of the very tight labor market and all the focus on unfilled positions as a kind of barometer of how tight that market is. Exactly. And that one of the advantages of our data is that you know, Jolts is useful, but it's not as timely as other data sources so that it lags you know, quite some time. Um, and, but our data um, is much more timely so that you know we usually update our our weekly postings data um, on Monday or Tuesday morning. So uh, next Monday or Tuesday, I will have, well, we'll all have data on what job postings were as of like right now today. So we only have a couple days of lag when it comes to our metric as opposed to Jolts, which, you know, 
uh, in the first week of October, we'll get data on the number of job openings the end of August. Well, we definitely want to come back to this, but can you just give us a quick hit? What's how do you is the market slowing at all? Is the postings coming in at all, or are they just still rip roaring? So we're seeing since the beginning of this year a pretty gradual pullback when it comes to job postings. It's far more concentrated in certain sectors than others. So software development jobs, which um, you know a lot of tech companies are hiring for, there's been a much more substantial pullback there. Um, but if you were to look at job postings on Indeed compared to the pre-pandemic baseline, so February, beginning of February 2020, um, that number is still up you know, more than 50% from where it was then. So like it is, if you're using that sort of longer time frame, demand is still quite high. It's just come down from very, very high levels early this year, end of last year. Is it, can I ask, uh, what was the peak? Uh, would that be appropriate? So I, I could tell you the peak in terms of, um, you know, compared to that pre-pandemic baseline. Yeah, and I'm, exactly. I'm pulling up the data right now. So for the U.S., the peak was actually, you know, roughly the end of last year, beginning of last year, and it was up um, 62.9% from that okay. pre-pandemic baseline. And now it's closer to 50. That feel, feels like the JOLTS data unfilled positions. Feels similar. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I do think the JOLTS has been, JOLTS, Openings have been a bit more robust, especially yeah. with the latest data that we got where there was... Well, that was weird, that latest data point. Yeah. 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 I don't believe it. Yeah. It Those, like it was... I mean, they do get revised substantially, and that was sort of mm. what we saw before is that the... I mean, we got July and June, and then June was revised up in July, was higher than expected. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. Yeah, we'll definitely come back to that. I, but uh, this this week, uh, I want to... We, we've got to talk about inflation. Uh Consumer price inflation CPI came out this week for the month of August on Tuesday. I think it's tu- it was Tuesday, Tuesday. right? Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that. I, you know, uh, I have to say, uh, obviously, look at a lot of economic statistics, and uh, almost always the statistics kind of are consistent with my priors. You know, they don't they don't change anything about the way I think about the economy and where it's headed. But there are times when I get a release that really challenges my my view of things, and I'll have to say that CPI report did that. Uh, mm-hmm. Very very um, uh, disconcerting, I thought. Uh, but anyway, uh, let me turn to Ryan. Ryan, uh, you you want to give us a sense of those numbers? Uh, and I, I'm really interested. And in, you know how you do that decomposition of mm-hmm. factors, forces driving the inflation. Yep. If you could do that for us too, that would be uh, helpful. Thank you. Yeah, of course. So overall, it was a very disappointing report. The headline, so the total consumer price index rose just one tenth, but the expectation. You know, we expected it, the consensus for a small decline. Uh, and that 10th, why we got some moder- a lot of moderation in inflation month over month was because of an enormous drop in uh, retail gasoline prices. They were down more than 10% <clears throat> month over month. Uh, but when you strip out food and energy and look at core inflation, and you know, this is a better barometer of where inflation is headed, uh, it was up six tenths of a percent uh, month over month. And that was much stronger, double what the con- consensus was anticipating. And when you look up, you know, through the report, uh, inflation is broadening out. So there's you know, more price increases across you know, different goods and services. And I think that's you know what's you know concerning is that you know, inflation is becoming a little bit stickier than what you know we had anticipated. We were hoping that inflation would be 
rolling over by this time. Uh, and it's just occurring more slowly. So if you look at some of the stickier components, rents were up a lot uh, and they're gonna, they haven't peaked yet. Uh, the good news is they're probably going to peak later this year, early next, if you look at you know the Zillow rent data. Uh, but inflation over the next few months could be stronger than what we anticipated in our baseline. So uh, even with the small increase in the headline number, it was still up 8.3% year over year. And when you break it down... Okay, okay. Uh, before you move on, before the breakdown, can I ask one quick question? Yeah, of course. So in the July CPI report, that came in softer than what folks thought, we thought, three-tenths mm -hmm. of a percent on core CPI, core Correct. being X food and energy. And we, just to remind everybody, we focus on that because that tends to be a, a better forecast of where inflation is going uh, going to be going forward. And obviously, that's what the Federal Reserve looks at when setting monetary policy. It was 0.3, and that made me feel pretty good when that came out. And then, as you say, the August number was 0.6. You know, I, I we have all learned not to place too much weight on any given data point. Would it be fair, do you think, to take the point three, add the point six, divide by two, and get point four five, and that's the reality of where we are, or or not? Yeah, I usually average over three months. Okay, so we're still you know point four, point five. So okay, no, I would agree with you that you know the, even in the inflation data, things can be a little bit choppy. So taking you know a moving average of a few months is probably the best approach. Right. And there, are, there were some things in the report, at least to my eye, that seemed kind of monthly vagaries of the monthly data, like mm -hmm. or measurement issues, like the continued strong increase in new vehicle prices. That feels a little weird and maybe related to some methodological changes at the Bureau of Labor. Yeah, they system. changed their methodology last, I believe, last year, uh, and now they're using uh, transaction data by JD Power. Uh, the other thing that caught my eye was. A very small decline in used vehicle prices. There was other data is pointing towards a much larger decline in used vehicle prices. So there's a, po there's a possibility that you get you know some revisions. Uh, I mean, we always warn about like response rates and response rates for some of the components of the CPI are very, very low. So to your point, we could see some revisions and you got to really take each month with a grain of salt. But uh, the other thing that jumped out was college tuition. Hold it, revisions, do they, they don't, I don't think, there's no CPI revisions, are they? They revise the seasonal factors. Oh, the seasonal factors. Oh, yeah, mm -hmm. good point. Yeah, so, right. I mean, it, I don't think yeah. it's going to make big changes, but yeah. it, it might smooth out some of the, yeah. the volatility. Okay. And I mean, I, the other thing is, you know, the pandemic brought back volatility and inflation. So, you know, that's why I think you're seeing some of these big month-to-month -month swings in, in some of the components of the CPI. Got it. Okay, so the decomposition, can you decompose the 8.3% year-over-year CPI inflation number uh, into into what's driving it? Yeah, just one comment on college tuition. Yeah. That rose more than I anticipated. Uh, and that's because in the last couple of years, colleges were trying to keep tuition down, the, the increases. So that August is normally when they, you know, the CPI for college tuition goes up and it rose more than the seasonal factor anticipated. So that kind of juiced it even more. And that's why we got you know a 0.6 on core inflation. Okay. All right. So the decomposition. So 8.3. So just as a reminder, the CPI was up 8.3 year over year. Supply chains. So that's uh, poster child is new and used vehicles. Uh, it also includes uh, children's apparel, electronics, things that are being disrupted by uh, global supply chain stress. That added one percentage point uh, to year over year, year over year growth in the CPI, which was identical to what it was in uh, July. Energy added 2.1 percentage points, which is down from 
2.9 percentage points contribution in July, and that's just a reflection of lower prices at the pump. Uh, food is adding one and a half percentage points to growth in the CPI, and shelter is adding uh, two percentage points. So that shelter one, that's the highest since you know, I think the early 90s. So that's that's a significant contribution, and that's sticky. That's going to hang around for uh, for a lot longer. Whereas energy and food and supply chain should start adding less and less over the next few months, shelter could add a little bit more. Okay, so let me ask you this. So let's just assume uh, oil prices stay roughly where they are, uh, give or take, you know, going mm-hmm. forward. Uh, and it, that, you know, that's a big assumption, obviously, a lot related to the Russian invasion, what the European Union decides to do or not do with regard to sanctions on Russian oil, whether a hurricane blows through the Gulf and knocks out a refinery, who knows? But you know, just let's, that's our working assumption. Uh, and let's assume the supply chains continue to uh, iron them, the, the, themselves out, and that goes to the pandemic becoming less and less of an issue. Uh, again, a big assumption given China's no COVID policy. You know, maybe they have to shut down big parts of their economy again. But let's abstract from that. Let's just no railroad strike. No railroad strike. You know, <laughs> nothing like that. Which. Thank goodness we averted that one. Yeah. That would have been a disaster. Um, uh, okay, those are my two assumptions. Uh, so that basically says the energy contribution comes out of the CPI. The supply chain contribution comes out of the CPI. A big chunk of the food price inflation comes out of the CPI because a lot of that's just the cost of getting – it's diesel, getting the uh, the food from the farm to the store shelf – where do we go on inflation? And uh, you know, we were at eight three. Do you do your comp- decomposition that analysis? Where are we going roughly? Uh, down close to four. Four. Okay, four percent. Okay, mm-hmm. and uh, I would characterize the Fed's inflation target on the CPI probably high end two and a half percent because there's correct methodological differences between the CPI and the core consumer expenditure deflator, which is what the Fed targets at 2%. And right now, the gap between the CPI and the PCE deflator are about a half a point. So let's say mm-hmm. two and a half. So we have to go from four to two and a half. Correct. And that the road from four to two and a half runs through shelter, rent, medical care, uh, those kinds of things. Is yeah, especially that- for the PCE deflator, medical care is a much yeah. bigger weight. So if you look at what is medical adding to the CPI, it's that's 50 basis points. So it's not an enormous contribution, but it will be larger in the PCE. Yeah. And I, I'm doing all this right now because we're going to, and Nick, this, uh, uh, I don't think I mentioned this, but I'm going to ask you for your odds of recession at the end. Gotcha. And, uh, and this is all kind of setting things up for that discussion because it's important to understand all this stuff. And okay. Nick, there's only one right answer. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Wow, how many significant digits do I have to respond out to? Like, is, <laughs> as many as you desire, Nick. Yeah. We take them all here at right. inside, inside Economics. Good uh, to know. You know, we have to offset. You know, Brian is kind of you know wishy washy out there. Doesn't give us you know real numbers. You know, no. so we have to you know offset that with some real numbers. Um, where Mark guarantees I? things. <laughs> Apparently, I did. I can't. This doesn't sound like me. That's a reference to another podcast. We're not going down that path. Uh, what was I going to say? Oh, uh, anything else, Ryan? You want to bring up on the report CPI? No, I, I didn't were you really... as disconcerted as I mean? I was. I'm kind of. I've been depressed ever since Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Slightly depressed. Maybe it's the gin and tonic. And well, 
that was the reason for the gin and tonic. Oh, that was yeah, the exactly. reason for the gin and tonic. Yeah. But no, yeah, when, when I talked to you on the phone after the CPI report, we were both yeah. kind of glum yeah. about it. Yeah. Bummer. I was hoping inflation would be coming in faster than it is. Okay. Hey, Nick, thing, it, it, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Oh, no, it really altered market expectations for the next meeting. So, oh, Fed, yeah. Tell, tell us about that. So, no, the Fed meeting. Yeah. So, they're fully, the markets are fully pricing in uh, a 75 basis point rate hike. Uh, the odds of a 100 basis point rate hike went up to 25%, and now they're back down to like 16%. So, I, okay. I think it's pretty much a slam dunk that they're going 75 next, yeah. next week. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Nick, do you have uh, any thoughts on the CPI report? I mean, do you look at that as closely as we do? Uh, I definitely do not look uh, as closely at it as you all do. Basically, okay, that was a that was a bad question because Ryan is definitely down and dirty yeah. with that that report. You're right. Yeah. No one is I, down into the bowels of that more than Ryan. I'd say. Yeah, it's a high high bar to clear. Uh, I think when those numbers, the CPI numbers, come out, I basically just look at what happened to rent of shelter um, and just um, sort of check in on that every month. Um, so the number that we got in the latest data was obviously not great because that's still super high. Um, so that's sort of um, my, you know, for me, thinking about inflation, it's usually just what's happening to rent. Um, and then also, I always already keep track of this already, but just wage growth trends. Yeah. Uh, and we're definitely coming back to that. I mean, one thing I'd add on the rent, if you, the CPI, you can break it down regionally as well. The BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics releases regional data, which I think is, you know, fascinating now because rent, so shelter in the South is up almost double digits. So uh, that's just a reflection of, you know, migration patterns and things like that. So it's like, if you rank order, I think off the top of my head, it's the South, West, Midwest, and then much lower is the Northeast. Yeah, this is a good place for me to turn to you, Chris, uh, in the housing markets, because what I've heard anecdotally is that uh, some of those high, previously high-flying markets in the South and in the West are now really cooling off, and we are starting to see some real moderation, certainly in house prices, they're starting to fall, yeah. but also in rent growth, I've heard, again, anecdotal, I haven't seen, the, seen it in the data yet, but the... Uh, uh, rate of increase in market rents, you know, the, what uh, new renters need to pay to move into a, a rental unit is uh, coming in pretty quickly. And actually, some places are actually now declining because of demand destruction. You know, uh, we're having rents so high that people can't form households. They can't leave their parents home or they can't, you know, strike out on their own. They, have to, they need roommates. So it's having a real impact. And of course, the remote work dynamic is still playing out, but not nearly as forcefully. I mean, we're not seeing as many people from LA move out to Phoenix or from New York down to Tampa, you know, that kind of thing. Is that, have you yeah. been watching this? Have you, have you am I, are those anecdotes the same thing you're hearing? Yes, yes. Uh, definitely seeing a slowdown across the board when it comes to housing. Um, now, you're right, the multifamily, the apartment market is also slowing but it's not nearly as uh, dire as what we're seeing in the, in the housing uh, prices and the home prices because uh, if people can't afford to buy homes they they rent if they can't rent then they just don't form the household to your point but so there is still that dynamic so things are slowing but i haven't seen that or heard of a really sharp declines in rents uh, just yet we are getting more supply and if you look at permits right the multifamily construction market is, I won't say healthy, but it's healthier uh, than uh, the single family. So they're, they're, builders are clearly responding 
to the uh, demand. So that will also help, but that you know that takes a bit of time for those uh, multifamily properties to to come online and actually help to reduce uh, rents further. But yeah, I, I think the direction it, it is clear at this point. There's really no opportunity for a uh, an apartment manager to raise rents very aggressively. The affordability is just out of reach. So. Right. So we, we're getting supply, more supply. Yep. And we're getting, uh, feels like- Demand dem- destruction. Some yeah. demand destruction. So the net of all that feels like rent growth is going to, is start market rent growth is starting to moderate. And that should start to show up in a moderation in the CPI rent. Um, not not quickly, but perhaps by next spring or so, we might be able to see some rolling over of the contribution of rent cost of shelter to the to the overall inflation. Is that kind of sort yeah, of right? Okay, I think that's I think that's accurate. Okay, that would be so, that would be nothing helpful. quick. Uh, yeah. Okay. Of course, the other aspect of inflation is the is service price inflation, and that is critically tied back to the labor market. You know, because the services are labor intensive. Labor markets are, by any measure, tight, very tight. Wage growth has been very strong. Depending on the measure, it's 5 6%-ish, sort of. Uh, I think that's roughly uh, consistent with the wage data. Uh, so, Nick, maybe we can turn back to you. And let's explore, you know, how really, how tight is this labor market? And, and let me just preface it by saying some of the tried and true measures of labor market slack I've used in the past they're not screaming, you know, this labor market, the labor market's at full employment, there's no doubt about it, uh, maybe a little bit beyond, but it's not screaming, you know, excruciatingly tight, except for one statistic, and that's the one you you know, you have a good view on, and that's unfilled positions. That's different this time. So how do you, how do you, how do you think about all this? How, how tight is the labor market? Yeah, I, I think, if you were just to, you know, go back in time and say to, to someone in late 2019, say, okay, it's the um, early fall of 2022, the unemployment rate's three and a half percent, and then you start describing some of the wage growth statistics and some of the, um, you know, commentary about the labor markets, I would be pretty perplexed because it was basically the same um, unemployment rate. And if anything, the labor force participation rate has dropped, so the share of people with a job is actually, you know. A little bit lower than where it was and even for prime age workers same thing so i think for me like the number one metric i was looking at is wage growth is nominal wage growth and that number obviously is also sort of pointing at a very very tight labor market um and that there is this question of you know the job openings um and particularly that ratio of job of job openings or vacancies to unemployed workers um i like follow the jolts report pretty closely and that's a statistic statistic that you can like that I've tracked for quite some time, but it went from something that like no one really talked about to now I feel like every other time or like every time um, Chair Powell talks about the economy and the labor market, that's um, a statistic he turns right to to, talk, right to to talk about how tight the labor market is. So I think part of what we're seeing is that, you know, economic growth and demand for workers just burst out of the gates in the spring of 2021 and that there's just been such fervent demand for workers after we got, you know, mass vaccination started rolling out. There was a lot of um, fiscal support for households, especially um, with that, you know, the American Rescue Plan um, and that sort of turbocharged at least consumer demand and employers just thought, okay, now it's time to quickly staff back up and 
we're just still in an environment where there's high level demand for new hires, but also at the same time, we're seeing really high levels of quits. So there's sort of um, this desire to like backfill for the people who left. So we're just in sort of a, um, in some ways, a, a self-sustaining environment of really high demand for workers. And that is, I think, different from what we're seeing back in 2018, 2019, when it was a more slow and gradual recovery. And that's why the labor market just feels and is much tighter than it was back then. Okay. So uh, right now, according to JOLTS, the, again, job opening labor turnover survey, there's a little over, I believe, 11 million unfilled positions. And there are, uh, I believe, 7 million un number of unemployed. So, you, you know, divide one by the other, it's almost two times, not quite two times. What's one in it? What is that? Uh, one and a half times, you know, something like that. Yeah, I think the I think the latest data was like it was just under two. Oh, is it just under two? Yeah. What am I missing? Yeah. Did I or maybe it's five million unemployed? Did yeah, I, I think it's I think it's five million unemployed. Yeah, yeah sorry, I, I miscalculated. So it's it's around two, let's say. Mm -hmm. And then you're saying pre-pandemic, it it was elevated. It was probably like one and a half. Uh, it was one point two, one point three. Okay, um, okay. Which okay. which prior to the, which, you know, Jolt only goes back to the end of the year two thousand. Um, right. But one point two. Um, was the all-time high for that series um, over that almost 20-year period. Um, and then obviously now it's even more elevated. I think what's also interesting is that if you look at that ratio, it obviously spiked or sort of dropped significantly in the spring of 2020. Um, but the pandemic. The pandemic. Um, but if you think about sort of how the unemployment rate rose so much, it was lots of people on temporary layoff. Um, and those are people who get recalled um, and job openings are for like, or at least um, the way you think, think about it and BLS is trying to capture is that it's demand for new hires. So recalls don't get counted or should, like when they ask employers about open positions, they say, but recalls don't count for this. Oh. So if anything, if you take away those temporary layoffs, that ratio didn't really dip that much because, you know, demand dropped, but the huge rise in unemployment was um, mostly for temporary unemployment. And you actually see it sort of does line up with some of the wage growth measures, like the ECI, like it drops in 2020, but not to the extent that it drops back in, you know, after the global financial crisis. The employment cost index, uh, ECI, that's like yes. the gold standard for wage growth because it controls for wages because it controls for occupation industry mix, that kind of thing, yep. which is which a little over 5% as well. Okay, so you, it sounds like the way you your favorite go to measure of uh, how uh, of labor market slack, how tight is the labor market? Is that I you look at unfilled positions divide by unemployed. That's a pretty good rule of thumb for how tight the labor market is. I, I'd say for thinking about the differences between say 2019 to now, I think that's that's in my top tier. I would also put. And I, I think the one that would go slightly above that is the quits rate. So the share of people who voluntarily left their job in a month, um, there's a pretty strong correlation between the openings rate and the quits rate. Um, and I think the sort of quits, the quits rate has a, a clear pass through or connection with wage growth. Cause you think about it, a lot of wage growth happens when people are leaving their old jobs and taking new ones. So I think that if you look at say, the different industries over the pandemic era who've seen some of the fastest gains in wages. It's also the sectors that have seen some of the proportionally the biggest rises in their quits rate. So leisure and hospitality, um, which has seen 
tremendously fast wage growth also saw very large rise in, in quitting. So I think uh, of those those metrics, I would I w- would weigh up. Um, I sort of rank fairly highly, and the quits rate I think would be um, up there near the tip top. The other thing I've observed in the jolts, and I'm I'm, I'm at, uh, wondering if you see the same thing in the in your data, is the uh, increase in unfilled positions is is across the board. It, it doesn't feel like there's the only industry in the jolts where we haven't seen a huge increase in unfilled positions is construction, I believe. But other than that, it feels like it's up a lot. You know, healthcare, financial services, professional services, manufacturing, retailing. You mentioned leisure hospitality. Is that, do I have that right? So in our data, it, it is a very similar trend that yep. it is it is the the differentiation there is just like how much things have grown, not whether are they are whether or not they are above pre-pandemic level or below it. Um, and that I think was that's the the case now. Back in late 2020, early 2021. Uh, that was not so much the case, but really it was that spring of 2021 um, where you started to see things really sort of explode when it come to, came to job postings uh, on our platform. But also, I think that characterizes the Jolt's openings data pretty well. Pretty well. What about regionally? Do you, do you have any sense of this across the country? Is it is it just uniformly coast to coast? So we have we're able to look at our data by. Uh, metropolitan area, so MSA. Um, and one thing that we noted is, is still the case now is that a lot of the larger metros have seen slightly weaker um, job posting growth than other parts of the country. Um, and part of that is compositional, just like some sectors have bounced back um, or occupational groups have sort of bounced back much quicker than others. Um, and so um, some of the like uh, hospitality and tourism, um, or even some of the um, like loading and stocking. Um, so that's sort of warehousing jobs. Those have bounced back quite a bit and they tend to not be concentrated in some of these bigger metros. Um, but also one thing that we saw in our data fairly early on, um, sort of the bounce back from the, reco- the pandemic was that um, we were seeing weaker growth in job postings for food service and retail um jobs in some of these big metros, which also were metros that tended to have more uptake of remote work. Um, so it would, and this is actually something we saw in, um, you can see in our UK data too, where basically cities or metropolitan areas where there was le- uh, you know, more remote work or even more direct measures of fewer people going into downtown business districts, you're seeing weaker growth in postings for food service and retail jobs where where you think about it sort of there's less demand for going to a lunch spot or an after work happy hour place if there's fewer people in the downtown area so it looks like that sort of shift in movement of people within metro areas was having a spillover effect when it came to demand for positions that basically relied on people going to those areas so it's up everywhere, but you're saying not up as much in uh, big urban centers where remote work might be a, might be an issue. That people are leaving those big have left those big cities and, and moved to other parts of the country. Essentially, yeah, yeah. What about uh, globally? Uh, do, you, do you see the same thing? Just to, uh, you, I think you mentioned yeah, you're in six or seven countries. Are you seeing the same thing across all six, seven countries? Roughly. So I think roughly. So it is. We are seeing that demand. Uh, or sort of postings on Indeed are elevated across um, 
you know, the seven markets that we've been tracking throughout the pandemic. It's just the extent to which they have risen. Um, the U.S. definitely saw much more rapid growth early in 2021, so sort of that initial stage of um, the reopening of the economy. Um, but now I think you know we have seen some fading, say, in the U.S. in job uh, postings on our platform, but Canadian job postings have held up um, more than others. We know that um, we were in Toronto, and we were, we were listening to uh, clients in Toronto, and they it, it some of the stories were pretty incredible. You know, we're trying to hold on to labor. Talk about a quit rate. Uh, they were really having trouble. Yeah, so I, I think, uh, sort especially in 2021, a lot of what we were seeing was that there were trends that were starting. You'd see it happen like sort of first in the US and then the UK and Canada and then sort of continental Europe um, where it was like demand started surging, our posting started picking up and sort of sequentially went along the line. Um, and even just anecdotally, because you know, a lot of our economists also talk to clients of indeed as well. It's sort of like the stories about, hey, we're having hard time filling a lot of these positions and then sort of concerns about labor force participation. You start again, it followed like the same route of which markets it was happening in. Let me ask you uh, a look of a pet theory I have, which I can't prove one way or the other, but doesn't mean I can't hold to the pet theory. So, mm -hmm. uh, but maybe you can disabuse of me of this is that not all job postings are equal that, you know, I, I call them, I would call them soft openings. Like, you know, economy reopened a year ago, now a little over a year ago, spring of 21, everyone back to work, posted a lot of job openings and once you put up a, as an employer uh, you put up openings you're reluctant to take them down uh you can you can do a lot of things to to keep them up but navigate around so for example okay just don't hire that per anybody until the next budget year or downgrade the position effectively from you know a, a high skilled to a medium medium skilled or a medium skilled to a low skilled uh, you know, there's a lot of, not all job postings mean the same thing. Can you measure that or do you have any sense of that? Uh, is, do you think that's having any impact on what we're observing? Yeah. So so I think I broadly agree that, that not every posting is equal to other postings, but I think there are ways that we've looked at our data to try to understand, you know, how much that has shifted. So, you know, on that first point, the idea that there are some, you know, I've heard people refer to this as sort of perma postings that people just put up a posting and let it oh, I like the way on the that, platform. That's a great way of describing it, perma posting. So, yeah. uh, so one way that we try to account for that in our data is that, so I've been talking about the sort of series that we create with job postings. That's sort of the total stock. We also do create a series that what we call new job postings. So it's postings that have been on Indeed for seven days or less. So it's more of like a flow metric. So you imagine if there's those perma postings, they're just not included in this metric because we can see how many days a posting has been on Indeed. So we sort of track what that measure has done. And over the course of the pandemic, it's been, it's more volatile. It's, it's a smaller share of postings. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's more, it led the way down and it led the way up, but the trends are basically very similar. We're like, it, it follows the same course. So I think, you know, when it comes to, you know, recruiting, there's definitely some postings that are like endure for quite some time. Um, but we have a metric there that shows, you know, when it comes to just new postings, it paints a very similar picture of what's happening to at least hiring intentions. Um, and also that, you know, there could be those perma postings, but even if we were to see, say, an increase in the sort of duration of job postings on our platform, that also 
it, you know, it could be reflective of some of those tactics. It also could be reflective of just it's harder to hire for those positions and that there's a like thinner market for the kinds of thinner mar- thinner or tighter market for a hire. So it's going to take you more time to fill that position. Um, so that, that could be one. But um, I do think that um, yeah. do the new postings accounts for that. And then there are so, other. But, so your, your sense is that, that, that that's not a significant phenomenon here that y- we can't discount the level of postings compared to where we were a year ago or that that that's not right that it, the, the postings we're seeing now are as as uh, good a posting as was about a year ago roughly speaking yeah and that that phenomenon existed back in and 2019 two. Yeah. existed now and we have i have not seen any, any any indication that it has become more common or more prevalent than it was okay back before the pandemic okay interesting do, do you see any differences by sector or occupation along those lines or so is the banking sector more likely to have a lot of perma postings or has that trend shifted than other sectors like, like services or so so we haven't done any like direct analysis of or like coming up with a metric of like the perma posting share of indeed postings or anything like that we okay. do look at those new postings by sector and for the most part like the aggregate series the new and total postings roughly move in line um so i, I think it's my read is that we've at the sector level it look, it doesn't look like there's been a significant change in sort of the cro- like the cross section or within a sector um it doesn't look like there's been a, a material change there either. So there's no real compositional shift. That's what I'm hearing. It doesn't look well. like it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We need an ECI for indeed yeah. job postings. Yes. Um, so that, that actually is something that um, we have not done. We have not released this for the U.S. yet, but um, my colleagues in the U.K. have used data on um, salary and wage information in Indeed job postings and have calculated basically a compositionally adjusted measure of growth in offered wages in postings. Um, and it does look like it sort of leads. Gosh, I have so many measures. questions. I've got so many questions and I'm, I've got so much ground we want to cover. I'll ask one more kind of in the weed kind of question. Sure. Uh, and and I, this goes to my ignorance around your business model. Uh, do 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 you do employers pay you a fee for the posting? So they're unlike like a Moody's could have a posting, but it you know we're not going through. I don't know if we go through Indeed or not. Probably not. There's no penalty to keep that posting up there, you know per se. But if I'm paying you a fee, Indeed, there's a penalty, and therefore you might not see the perma postings. You see where I'm going with this? So, so the idea being that if you're not a paying customer of Indeed, like it's more like the, yeah, that shifts in who. So, so let me put it this way: the way that like a posting shows up on Indeed, um, you could be a paying customer or not. Um, what Indeed's trying to do is capture all the job postings on the internet, okay, and putting it in one spot so job Got seekers it. can find it. So, yeah, uh, if paying customer or not, it's going to show up on our platform and there's like rules for the platform so that that try to be applied consistently so that if there has been a posting on the platform even if it's not um you know put on the platform by an employer that's someone at indeed saying that's been up there for x period of time let's well, more. i have there's to say 
I'll have to say, I, I, now I'm getting the real sense of why you took that job. This really is interesting. You've got a lot of really cool stuff to look at. I got two two more things I want to hey, Mark, explore. so Moody's does have postings on Indeed. Oh, do we? Do mm -hmm. we? Oh, well, so they, they well, must thank be... you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, very, very, uh, uh, that's great. Maybe unpaid is what I'm hearing. It could be unpaid. Okay. I, I don't know. I, actually, I don't, <laughs> don't know. know. I have no idea. We don't know. I have, yeah, I have no know. idea. I have no idea. <laughs> Um, I have two more questions about this. Then I'd like to play the statistics game. And I have yep. a sense you're going to be really good at that. Mm -hmm. I can feel it in my bones. Yeah, there you go. Uh, fingers crossed. And then uh, I want to come back and talk about remote work. Uh, and we got to all do that. We've almost been talking for an hour. I can't believe it. It feels like it's, feels like it's going so fast. But my two quest first question is, um, how do you square that compared to other measures of labor market slack, like uh, Ryan's um, favorite measure is uh, the employment population ratio for prime age workers. That are the rule of thumb there is uh, 80% EPOP, prime age 25 to 54. We're at 80.3, which says, okay, you're within spitting distance of where we should be. Uh, or labor force participation, or, I, you know, the other one is um, the, the fact that we're just creating so many jobs. I mean, how can the economy have a problem with labor market slack if it's creating three, four hundred, five hundred thousand jobs a month. I mean, that doesn't feel like a, a labor market that's running out of people. So how do you how do you square that in your in your thinking about this? So, so, so earlier in our conversation, you said you were confused, and I have to about this data of the labor market, and I have to admit that I think about this a lot, and there's just lots of conflicting signals, um, okay. and that. But I, I think I, I have a story in my head that tries to square as much as that's possible. Um, so I'll say that, like Ryan, I am a big fan of the prime age to prime age employment to population ratio. Um, I think before the pandemic, back in 2018, 2019, if you'd asked me what a, what would be like my top measure of labor market slack, I would have said that. Um, but I think what happened is we just entered a dynamic where. You know, the recovery we saw after the global financial crisis in the labor market was sort of a slow and steady one where demand was growing, you know, slowly but steadily and supply was like coming back with a lag. And I think that's happening right now. Um, just everything has been turbocharged and sped up um, so that demand, which leads supply in the labor market, just went firing ahead really quickly. And there have been a variety of factors, especially you know, in the depths of the pandemic and, you know, the immediate aftermath um, uh, as we sort of transition out of the acute phase um, that really held back participation. And some of them are fading. Um, so, you know, fear of the virus itself, um, even after vaccination, looked like there's evidence there. There's some of these excess savings or financial cushions that seem to have like helped some people um, ride out not working. Um, and then also some like childcare issues, which, um, at least compared to pre-pandemic baselines have faded. So that um, we're just, it, it was a very demand, like a quick rise in demand. Um, and that is why I think measures that account for either the level of demand for workers or like job to job flows are better capturing what's happening in the labor market right now, um, rather than a recovery that's like a slow and steady um, drawdown of supply. Um, so I think, that is sort of the story that I tell myself that it's just mm. the real the speed of the recovery. Um, even if there's the destination, we're not quite at you know, mm. the level. So I think it's more of a to put it another way is that the the 
sort of the tightness or the temperature of the labor market is being driven now by the speed at which it's moving, not it's like it's not it's distance from its final destination. Hmm. Um, so that as things slow down, you might get a fading in the tightness of the labor market or that temperature might decline a little bit, but it'll sort of get back to where you would have expected um, if say the prime age employment to population ratio gets back to that pre-pandemic are a little bit higher. So it's sort of like overshot what you would think given supply, uh, the level of supply or level of employment because of the speed of the recovery. Okay. Very interesting. So now I want to, uh, last question on this, and unless Chris or Ryan want to explore something in more depth, but uh, the crux of the matter, uh, wage growth and ultimately inflation. And, uh, you know, if you go back before the pandemic, you, you do a nice scatter plot over time comparing employment cost index growth vis-a-vis EPOP 25 to 54. Just one axis is EPOP, the other axis is ECI. This is the Adam Ozemek, uh, if you know Adam. Uh, I do. I'll call it the Adam Ozemek line or relationship. The Ozemek curve, yeah. The Oz- oh, that's, I, I, he'll Great. love that. He'll love that, of the Ozemek curve. It did a beautiful job, right? Uh, the relationship was very strong. You know, you could see it. Now you put the pandemic quarters in the chart. It's like a level shift up. It's like mm-hmm. just a literal level shift up. And my kind of theory up to this point has been, well, that's a one-time level shift. Okay, gas prices, oil prices surge, gas prices surge, food prices surge. Going back to the Russian invasion, we had all these shortages because of the supply chain issues, vehicle prices, workers said to employers, hey, you know, look what's happening here. Give me a bump to my wage. And so you see this level shift up uh, in, in wage growth. But if, and if that kind of narrative is correct, that diagnosis is correct, then is, uh, is, uh, now that uh, oil prices are back in and we start to see, you know, these inflation for food and vehicle prices, all the things that we think we're pretty confident are going to happen here if assuming this uh the uh the invasion doesn't go down a dark path or the we get another problem with the pandemic we're going to see that wage growth come right back to the ozemec curve uh and life is good uh you know we don't need to see the fed jack up interest rates to a place where we're going to push us ourselves in the economy what what do you think of that that theory so i have like i have similar thoughts but i think for me the story of like how we get back the Ozenet curve, and I hope Adam really enjoys this. Um, is that? Oh, he will. He will. Oh, he will. Oh, he um, will. Oh, he's going to tweet about this. I, I he can better. He better tweet better. about it. Yeah, he better. Because um, uh, you're a big Twitter guy too, I believe. I I am unfortunately. What's your Twitter? Just, what's your Twitter handle? It's just Nick underscore Bunker. Okay, you see how I, I'm, I'm helping you advertise here, Nick. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, okay, thank you. Um, and I'm at Mark Zandy. I'm just saying. I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. Plug everyone. Ryan, plug everyone. He's rolling his eyes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's I been a while. A while. It's been, been a while. while. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, sorry, Nick. I I interrupted you. Go ahead. No worries. So so I think that my view of that is that one of the things that differentiates sort of the 2019 and 2022 labor markets, even if they have somewhat similar employment to population ratios for primary workers, is that um, the quits rate is much higher. That you know within employment, there's far more churn. Um, and particularly in sectors that already had lots of vol- churn, voluntary churn, so quits, um, so leisure, hospitality, retail. So I think it is some of that dynamic is it's those sectors um, that's not reflected in that metric because 
an employed person is an employed person is an employed person in that metric doesn't account for like lots of churn within that metric i I think a story i i could tell is that we start to see the quits rate start to really fade from you know the very the still high levels we're seeing right now it has faded a little bit this year but still well above pre-pandemic levels um you know that could start to come down um i think the issue there is that some of the sectors that have seen the biggest rise in churn that have seen some of the strong wage growth are in sectors that aren't necessarily directly affected by interest rates it's like if the federal reserve is trying to cool down wage growth um their tools might not be well equipped um just because a lot of stuff in leisure and hospitality, it's hard to see the direct pass through from higher interest rates necessarily to fewer people going out to restaurants. You know, I have this bad feeling when we get to the odds of recession where Nick is going to land on this. Mm-hmm. I'm getting, I'm just getting that dark foreboding feeling. Uh, okay. All I don't right. Think you need uh, to worry about Nick. I think you got to worry about Chris. Oh yeah! Look, you, you, oh yeah! Uh, we already had a conversation last night. We already night, had so. we, oh. we, we, we had a lengthy conversation yeah. about this. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, the game. We're going to play the statistics game now, and that is uh, just to remind everyone. I know people get annoyed who've listened to the podcast before, but you know, tough. Uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> I'm the moderator. Uh, how do you play the game? Oh, the game. Uh, each of us give a statistic. The rest of us try to figure it out with the uh, clues and um, questions, deductive reasoning. The best uh, cl- uh, statistic is one that's not so easy that we get it slam dunk, not so hard that we never get it. And uh, uh, this is where I kind of go off the rails a little bit. It has to be related to <laughs> what we're talking about and the statistics of the week. Uh, sort of, you know, that would be nice. Uh, okay. Chris, I'm going with you first. Uh, we'll let Nick uh, absorb this. Uh, you're you're up. What's your statistic? You want easy, but clearly highly relevant, or I want hard. one that I can get, Chris. You know, before Ryan, one, before Ryan gets it. Yeah, I want one you guys didn't talk about last night. We, I'm gonna uh, go hard. Yeah. Oh, is this gonna go hard. Nick, Nick is tough, so I'm. Well, now we didn't collude. There's no collusion in this All thing. Right. It's nope. for every man for himself. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna give you a. Yeah, three. This is Ooh, tough. What? Three st- related statistics. Oh, okay. I thought, oh. that, I thought that statistics <laughs> was three. Okay. No, no. Uh, 15.8%, 61.2%, and 188.8%. Oh, goodness. And they're right related. Here. My guess is Chris is going different CPIs by country. Uh, C- it is CPI. No, not by country. Oh, uh, oh, oh. Uh, by country, kind of, sort of, kind of, sort of, but not, not all CPIs. One of them is a CPI. Are, the, are these natural gas prices? Uh, oh, you got, you got natural yeah, gas price. Which one? one? Which one's natural gas? One hundred and eight. One hundred eighty-eight is natural gas for which Europe, area? Europe. Yes. I, I'd say that's the uh, price at the uh, Dutch port. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? The, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the, the, the Hague, standard, if you will. The Hague, right. yeah, the Hague. I get, I get, I get some credit for that, no, don't no, I? No, <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Okay, okay, but that's only one of the. Of that's the only one. Are, are, they, are the other two also energy price related? They're all energy price related. Okay. Gotcha. What were the numbers again? Fifteen point eight is the Fif- increase in uh, U.S. natural gas prices. Or, oh no! But you're no. close. You're getting 
It's the middle one. What was the middle one? Yes. Yes. It's the that middle one. 61.2 61. is the okay. year-over-year increase in U.S. natural gas. 15.8%? No. Oil? It's not, no. It's not gas. It's not U.S. No. gas. Is it U.S. related? It is U.S. and it's CPI related. This is uh, Oh, back to CPI. Oh, is this food? No. Nope. No, food is... Uh, well, it's got to be energy related, right? Electricity yep. prices or something. Yes. Yes. Oh, okay. I get credit for that. Geez. Yeah, you get that one. Yeah. Oh, my yeah. gosh. That's, All right. That's amazing. That that, who got that one? Like, okay. I, I think that. it was a team effort there. Team effort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nick, Nick, where were you? You got to come on, man. I, I clearly need to read up more on energy prices. <laughs> Cover that well enough. <laughs> No, Maybe the trick here is not to read anything. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Deductive reasoning. Deductive yeah. reasoning. Yeah. So 15.8% electricity price year over year. That's big, right? That's, that's huge. That's not uh, inconsequential. Yeah. Uh, and on top of that, the natural gas prices are even higher than that, right? 61% in the US, 180, 89% in the US, in, uh, in Europe. So consumers haven't even really felt the full effect of, um, of the... Uh, higher gas prices on natu- on uh, electricity prices. About 40% of uh, US electric generation is from natural gas. But because we have regulated utilities, right? There's, there are limits on how uh, high the, um, the prices could go. So my fear is that we, you know, this is one of those other factors that is gonna continue to weigh on inflation going forward, right? Uh, even as gas prices normalize, if they do at a higher level, still utility prices could uh, continue to rise as those rate hikes uh, filter in. I think the other thing though, related... Oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Sorry. Other, other uh, statistic related to this that came out this week was a, a study that about 20 million households are behind on their utility bills. Mm. So that is certainly a, uh, an ominous sign. Well, what's it typically, Chris? Do you know? I don't. Okay. Just, uh, <laughs> but, uh, it sounded like that. it's elevated. It sounds <laughs> elevated. Yeah. Well, I, my, cause I look at things glass half empty, uh, half full, I should say, is that it feels like natural gas prices have, have peaked here. They can't go much higher, at least in the United States, because of the uh, capacity constraints on LNG, liquefied natural gas. Cause the uh, gas prices, natural gas prices have risen here a lot because we've been shipping natural gas to Europe where they're obviously very high because they got cut off from Russian natural gas, but there's a physical constraint on how much can be shipped. We're at that constraint and therefore the, the natural gas is now bottled up here in the U.S. You can't do any more arbitrage and therefore the price has peaked. Does that, does that resonate? Uh, sure, I think for now, and also the demand maybe is moderating in Europe to some degree, right? They are at, yeah, they, yeah, they're at close 90%, to their capacity, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, so I'm not uh, particularly concerned, obviously should be concerned about anything that could happen, but uh, I think we're in reasonably good shape now as we go into this this winter. I'm actually more concerned as on the other side of this as we get to the spring and summer of next year, mm. right? Europe would usually be filling up their tanks with Russian uh, gas at that point. And they, much of the gas in their tanks today is already uh, Russian uh, gas. So what happens then if we are still in the situation where and there's no gas provided by Russia, yeah, the U.S. is going to try to supply the world at that point, but uh, I think that will continue to put significant demand on prices. I don't see, maybe prices don't go up significantly, but I don't see them coming back down uh, anytime soon as well. Yeah, makes sense. Hey, Nick, you want to go next? Sure thing. Uh, So my statistic is 17.9%. Is it labor market related? Yes. Did it come out this week? It did. Ooh. Oh, 
Is it an Indeed number or is it a government statistic? It's a government statistic. Okay. Uh, seventeen point. That would have been good though to use an Indeed number. Yeah, I I, th- I thought about it, but I didn't want to uh, be that much of a shill. <laughs> that's that's all. You would have gotten it. quite a bit of harassment. Yes, I figured that as well. <laughs> Borderline uh, cheating. Seventeen point nine percent labor came market out related week. came out this week. Unemployment uh, insurance claims related. Nope. No. Did it come from? Uh, did it come from an NFIB survey, the Small Business Survey? Nope. Nope. Okay. Nick might be going like the American Time Use Survey. Oh, really? That no, came no, out I'm this just week. Saying, I don't know. I don't, no. Not much came out. Labor yeah, that's, really. uh, yeah. That's, 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 that's a little. That's where we're struggling. <laughs> uh, labor market related. Uh, I, I can give anything a hint. with the rail strike. Not with the rail strike. Any other strike? Is it number number strike? It's related to strike strike action. It's, it's not related to strike action. Oh gosh, Mark, Mark was getting excited there. I was getting so excited. Yeah, <laughs> almost had it. I, I, I it came out this it. week. Yeah, can you? It's give a us regular hint? series. It gets it, released. So it is a regularly. new statistic from a regular series. Oh, oh, oh. that's interesting. Oh, oh. this is going to be good. Yeah, we're going to learn something here. Um, hmm. Not claims. Not. Oh, can you give it, us another it, rough hint? Yeah. Uh, it came out from the Census Bureau. That's a good one. That's another good one. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I'm, I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm, I'm stumped. You're stumped. Drawing you, a blank. Drawing yeah. a blank. What is it, Nick? Yeah. So this is from the Census Bureau released a, a new data from the American Community Survey. Oh. Um, so 17.9 percent was the share of people who worked primarily from home in 2021, which is uh, up from 5.7% uh, back in 2019. Oh, that's a great statistic. That's an, that's excellent. A, that's an awesome one. You should get a cowbell just yeah, for we'll give you a cowbell. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Very, um, very yeah, well done. Very deserved. In fact, you know, I feel met all the ashamed. criteria. All the criteria. Yeah. I feel a little ashamed for Ryan and Chris for not getting that. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought this one was relevant for obviously uh, remote work, which is something uh, on the docket for us to talk about, but also the fact that um, when it comes to like official statistics on the number of people actually working remotely, it's been a bit tricky to track that because in you know, May of 2020, the BLS uh, and census added this question to the um, household survey for the, uh, the jobs report asking about people working remotely. But the way they phrased that question was because of the pandemic. So that number right. has been drifting down over time, oh. but Mostly that's probably people saying, well, I'm not yeah. doing it because of the pandemic anymore. So this metric accounts for that by asking people, do you, do you work primarily from home? And it's, um, it's more than triple, like it's tripled um, over a two year period. Um, and I also like that it's phrasing about primarily at home as opposed to like just working remotely, which I think is a bit more wishy-washy. So this is from the American Community Survey. So, Correct. okay. And th- we only have two data points, one from 21 and 2021 and one from 2019. 2019. Um, oh, 2019. What, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. It was 2019 to 2021. Yeah. Um, that is like the number that was in the um, press release from the census. And I was trying to find the actual underlying data, but I, I couldn't find it quite yet. Um, but I imagine there'll be micro data sometime soon. Yeah. So we take, take a close that. look at that. That's fantastic. Uh, okay. Well, let's do one more because we got 15 minutes left. Uh, and uh, I, I do want to talk a little bit about remote work. Can I ask Nick, though, can we have you back? Because uh, we're, we're not having enough time, we're not having enough time to dig into the remote work thing as much as I'd like. Is that okay? Would you come back totally. relatively soon? Okay. All right. 
you wouldn't tell me otherwise on maybe he'll, he's going to send me an email mark you know i'm not so sure i want to come back you know but uh yeah i'm, I'm not gonna, gonna i'm not gonna reverse my opinion on this happy, okay happy very good happy. okay <laughs> one more we'll do ryan ryan you go you go next all right so it's a goose egg zero zero percent okay uh C- cpi related it is not well prices affect this thing but it's not directly in the cpi it's price related it's not price related Retail sales related. It is retail sales related. Oh, is well, this the control it, group was, for retail sales? Uh, it, X. Yep. Yeah. Zero percent. Oh, he's. A, I told you he's, he's a rock star. He's this. a rock star. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yep, they're yeah. unchanged. And uh, July was revised lower. It got cut in half. So it was up 0.8 percent initially. Now it's up 0.4. And why this is important? This feeds into the. Bureau. Explain. Can you just explain? Oh, yeah. So yeah. control retail sales is so total retail sales, excluding autos building materials, gasoline, and restaurants. So this feeds into the government's estimate of real consumer spending. So with the new, the revision to July, the new August data, real consumer spending is on track to rise less than 1% annualized in the third quarter. Uh, this might not be a, a very good reflection of this, the, the entire state of the consumer because we're shifting away from goods stuff, which is retail sales, into services. So we'll get services data later this month. but. Right now, spending looks a little soft in the third quarter, and that lowered our tracking estimate from 1.7, our tracking estimate for GDP from 1.7 to 1.1% uh, annualized. So it's kind of the same pattern that we've seen in the last each of the last two quarters. We started off okay, and then as the source data came in, we were just started nosediving. So you know what I'm going to say? You get a third oh, no. quarter. Oh, no. It's going to kill me. Then how are we, how, oh, geez. How do we, so if it declines, I got this question at a, a presentation I gave, and it was yeah. an interesting question. If we get three I know. executive, and I oh, said it, it depends on, you know, what drove the decline. If it's inventories and trade again, then no, I wouldn't say it's a recession, but yeah, it's going to be harder and harder to. Oh my gosh. Oh, right. Okay. Job can I ask, I, one, mm-hmm. one thing, you, one question you might not know the answer to quickly is retail price inflation. Do we have a sense of because you know for retail goods inflation can be very different than you know for the CPI. They're you know obviously going to be tied to each other. But mm-hmm. do you have any sense of that? You know what's the inflation rate for retail goods in the retail sales report? That's a great question. I don't know off the top of my head. Okay, but I can look it up for you. Yeah, because I, I, you know, we should start seeing some weakness there because of all the. I think we have. Yeah, we have. So okay. So that goods disinflation is happening. It's just not as significant as I think we were anticipating. And and this is really into the bowels, but quickly in your in the tracking GDP tracking, are you using overall inflation or are you using retail goods inflation? We use retail goods inflation, but the you model. Are, okay. So the model I run it and it spits out the number and. I don't have to, I can yeah. go into the model and look at what the retail inflation is, but no, we, okay. we map it to uh, the high frequency model is a bean counting approach. We use a similar methodology as the, the BEA uses to calculate GDP. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, let, let's move on. I'm, I, just for sake of time, I, I had a great statistic, but I'm not going to give it to you because uh, I want to, I want to get to remote work. Uh, so uh, Nick, uh, maybe you can just riff a little bit here and just give us a general sense of your take on on remote work, obviously, it's it's becoming more of a deal. Seventeen point nine percent in twenty. I think you said that in twenty twenty one. That's uh, pretty significant rising. Uh, so, what do you think? Is this here to stay? And and what does it mean? 
I think it's very much here to stay um, that I think what we saw in prior to the pandemic, I think for a lot of jobs, there was this potential for jobs to be done remotely. And by remotely, I mean sort of totally untethered from location within the U.S., sort of the situation I'm in, but also more hybrid work. So people working more days remotely, but still going into the office from day to day. Um, the potential was there. It just took um, sort of Zoom existed. I've been using Zoom since like 2018, video conferencing. Um, the technology was there. We just needed a shock. And unfortunately, the shock that we got was the pandemic. But um, what we've seen um, is that at least the acute phase of the pandemic is now over. People are starting to you know, leave their homes, go to offices, but we're still seeing uh, remote work endure. And this is something that you know you, we can see in Indeed data that we have. Um, we've been tracking the share of postings um, across a, a number of markets that mention terms related to remote work. So sort of the share of postings are advertising remote work. Um, and that jumped up significantly in the early days of the pandemic, but it's not drifted down. Um, I mean, it's come down a little bit, but still very elevated. Um, in the US in 2019, it's about two and a half percent, somewhere in the two, two and a half percent of postings mentioned those terms. Now it's 8.8%. Um, and so it's been a significant rise. And that's something that we're seeing hold up across markets. Um, some of my colleagues did a joint report with the OECD on this, and you look across 20 different markets um, that Indeed has coverage of, um, and you can see a similar trend that restrictions and lockdowns happened in the spring of 2020, remote work really rised, um, but that there has been some gradual shift down, but there's been no significant retreat of it, even as we're starting to get closer to a like post-pandemic life. It looks like the adoption is pretty sticky. Yeah, I I don't I don't see this. I think it feels like a game changer to me. Uh, I mean, it's going to happen. It's going to flow. I mean, I assume as office buildings reopen now here in New York and and L.A., San Francisco, that and CEOs are adamant that they get their folks back into those towers, that we're going to see maybe some unwinding. But that doesn't feel like that's the trend. The trend feels like you know we're going to continue to see more remote. And people want it. Workers want it. And Given the state of the labor market and given it feels like we're going to have labor supply issues for a long time to come, given demographics, uh, workers have the upper hand in these kind of negotiations. They're going to get it. Yeah. And what we can see is we're also tracking searches on the Indeed platform, the share of those searches that are for like those remote work key terms to understand job seekers interest. And that is a little under 10% of all searches on Indeed right now in the US, which is um, that's. Again, it's. I think that's more than four times what it was before the pandemic, um, and that, that has not drifted down nearly as much. Um, what's also interesting is that well, there has been a decline in the share of postings that mention remote work or advertise remote work um, beginning of this year. But a lot of that is like a compositional shift. Mm-hmm. That we've just seen postings pull back more in software development and other tech-related jobs. Um, but if you look inside of those kinds of jobs, the share of um, those postings that advertise remote work has basically held constant over time. Um, and for software development, it's just shit. It's just south of 40% advertise remote work. And that there's a possibility that more of those jobs are remote or flexible in some way, but just don't advertise it. So it does look like, you know, it's one sector, it's one particularly remote friendly sector, but even as, you know, demand for workers, or like as postings have come down, there hasn't been a shift within that sector. So it's not as though, so those employers are retreating and like becoming less willing to advertise remote work. It's just that they're pulling back in general. 
Yeah. The, the other uh, narrative I have in my mind, I'm just curious what you think, is that uh, with uh, technology as it continues to improve, and also as businesses form, they're more likely going to optimize around remote work. They're not going to optimize around a cube or an office space. That those two, those two dynamics, the technology and uh, business formation, that's just going to reinforce this move towards remote work over time. Yeah, that if you think about it, I, I think part of the one of the barriers still at this point to remote work is just um, for incumbent or existing businesses. Like they had a way of doing business before the pandemic that was pretty reliant on people being in the same spot and like having face-to-face meetings. Um, so if you have new companies and all they know is a remote first or hybrid first world, there's ways they can sort of set up the structure of their company to be more um, remote friendly. And maybe some of that is even within a company, there's distinction within certain job types that, yeah, there's some jobs that need to, within a company need to come into the office um, just because face-to-face interaction, say with clients is really important, but there might be some jobs within the same firm that that management decides it's fine if you just, um, you know, video conference in for certain calls or just visit the office um, a few times a year. Um, so I think that distinction between, um, you know, even within a company, the certain kinds of jobs or occupations that can be done. And then also how much of the future of remote is hybrid. So sort of just stay in the same metro area versus fully remote. Because for the most part, the rise has been a lot of hybrid work, um, even if there has been an increase in people who have, um, myself included, moved to different metro areas um, over the past two plus years. Well, here's the money question. Is uh, is this uh, positive for productivity or negative for productivity? I mean, you know, got the CEOs on one side of this, or seemingly, and I'm painting with a broad brush, obviously, not every CEO, uh, but you got some pretty vocal uh, CEOs saying this is, you know, people are taking advantage, they're not, they're shirking, it's hurting productivity, it's hurting young, young workers because of a lack of mentoring, you, you miss the kind of, uh, serendipity the the it's the water cooler uh, i have a hard time saying that because i can't there's no such thing but anyway uh uh and then you got the economist saying oh well you know you look at the data and you know we don't have a whole lot of data points yet but they're pretty so you know what do you think is this uh, productivity enhancing or productivity impeding so i think if i had to come down one way i'd be on enhancing um i think you know there's the research that I've read and also personal experience have indicated that it's not really been a huge hindrance to productivity. Um, you know, I think Nick Bloom and his, uh, Nick Bloom was at Stanford and his co-authors have done some research on the productivity um, sort of wider effects. It doesn't look like it's, um, it, it definitely doesn't look like it has held back productivity. Um, in terms of like, again, this is more personal experience, but in terms of like serendipity or um the digital water cooler. Um, I think that's just a requires a shift in people's perspective about how you do work. Um, now, this my bias is that I've even before the pandemic, I was on a team where very few of us were in the same city. Um, but there's ways that you can do things um, digitally. Um, it's actually really easy to like just chat with someone, and be like, "Hey, you want to jump on a call really quickly to talk something through?" And also, there's the fact that just because you're based in one area doesn't mean you can't from time to time all meet in person. Our team has done that. Um, back in July, we did a meeting where we all sort of convened for the first time for the pandemic. And it was really generative for ideas and lots of great um, research possibilities came out of it. But um, 
you don't need to do team brainstorms every week or every day. You can sort of plan that out um, and have some of the benefits of those in-person contact, but not having, but getting some of the benefits also of um, more of the day-to-day work being remotely or done at home. Let me ask, uh, because we are running out of time and uh, I have a hard stop. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Are there any, is there an economist out there or economists out there that are coming up with opposite results? I mean, I, I, you mentioned Nick Bloom. I've seen stuff out of the University of Chicago. You've seen your great work on this and others. I've not seen the other side of this. Have you? I have not. Um, okay. I do wonder if part of it is that if there are potential issues and that that's the sort of thing that has been highlighted by, you know, again, broad brush, like CEOs or like senior management, it might be something that doesn't pop up for quite some time. Like one thing potentially, you know, mentoring or career advancement, maybe that's something that doesn't show up in the mm. data a few years down the line. So maybe, right. maybe it's, maybe it's less, there is no unintended consequences you or don't unintended know. consequences. Just yeah. we need reality needs to, we need time line for us to see that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, definitely. Uh, I'm going to book you right away to come back on and we're going to uh, dig or deep, dig deeper into the remote work. And maybe we, I have a, I just had a brilliant idea. I don't know what you think. Why don't we get uh, Ozamek on at the same time? Wouldn't that be fun? That would be fun. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah. Or the, yeah. Uh, maybe we can get you two to argue with each other somehow. We'll figure that out. Uh, I'm happy to do that. Okay. <laughs> I knew you would be. <laughs> Uh, and here's the other no, thing. No, I, Adam and I do agree on a lot, so it, it might be less of a um, okay. Well, situation. Then I'll, then I'll pick for. a fight with both of you. I'm really good okay. at that. Yeah, I can cool. do that. No problem. Uh, and what was I going to say? Oh, <clears throat> probabilities of recession. We we did, I, we can't do it. I don't. We ran out of time. We're no. So I do. Uh, think, how convenient. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> the world will never know. Uh. <laughs> no, wait, 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 wait. On Monday, don't we have a podcast, live, in-person podcast? With, don't we? we? Do. Okay. We do. We'll do it then. We'll do it then. Nick, are you really bummed that you couldn't tell us your probabilities of recession? Or do, I'll, would you su- like- I'll, I'll survive. I'll will, be fine. Well, well, you're coming back, and don't yeah. worry. This, this thing about recession is not going away anytime yeah. soon. I'll, I'll, oh. I'll refine my estimates so there's four decimal points. Instead All right. Two. You got it. Well, Excellent. next time you're back, we'll yeah. probably be in a recession. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> maybe book me before you. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, with that GDP number, you're scaring me with that, Ryan. No, I'm getting uh, scared. Gosh. Okay. All right. With that, we're going to call it a podcast. This was a great podcast. Thank you, mm-hmm. Nick Blue, uh, Nick uh, Bunker. Thank you so much for Thanks coming for on and really enjoyed the conversation. And um, I'll see you guys on Monday, right? Uh, yep. See you on Monday in the office. Hello. In the uh, yeah, uh, th- don't get used to it now. Uh, you know, we're, we're remote now. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. All righty. All right, guys. Take Thanks. care. Have a good weekend.